At the close of the previous chapter, John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, that is, we looked at those who were enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, some of whom looked and acted as though they were of Christ, they were in Christ, they looked like the real thing. But just like these duplicates, they were just that, they were fake They were duplicates. They weren't the real thing because they didn't have the proper machinery that produced real, genuine, authentic Christianity in them. They didn't have Jesus Christ. The counterfeits were found out for who they actually were and are, and that is they were just imitations. As we look at this passage, look at the topic as you see on the overhead, being a child of God. Before I get into that, though, and again, Jerry took you through Ephesians. But by way of reminder, I want want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll read a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Just by, again, by way of reminder, as we consider the thought, being a child of God. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. Doesn't stop there. In which you once walk according or following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You jump down to verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that one, at one time you Gentiles... In the flesh, called on circumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. I want you to zoom in on these descriptives. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise having no hope and without God in the world. Thankfully, those aren't the only verses in this chapter, as you are well aware, because there is a verse 4 after verse 3, and it reads thus, After you were described as being dead in trespasses and sin, you are children of wrath, you are following the prince of the power of the air. Paul uses a very strong conjunction, but God. But God. And you go to verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. So these verses are just, and there are many others, are just describing who you, believer, once were. This is not who you are now. That is the game changer. But God, but Christ. What am I saying here? 
you and I, believers, whether we want to accept that or not, and I hope we do accept that, we were once enemies of the cross. Just like we saw earlier in the latter parts of chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we were once enemies of the cross, but now because of Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, in John 15 verse 13, 14, we're described as friends, not enemies, but friends. And in 1 John chapter 3, that we're about to look at, see Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us, unto you and unto me, that what? That we should be called children of God. And it doesn't stop there. And so we are. And so we are. What then distinguishes us? What distinguishes the believer from the rest of the world? What distinguishes the believer from the rest of mankind? Like the U.S. dollar makes us, what then like the U.S. dollar rather, makes us so unique from the rest of society, from the rest of the world? How can you know, how can you and I know that you and I are children of God? And I want you to follow with me as we make our way through the text, highlighting some hallmarks of what it is to be children of God. But before we do so, let us turn to him in prayer, asking him for his guidance, direction, and his leading. Father, we are so grateful and so thankful that even just approaching this text without hearing anything, Lord, having some knowledge of what the text says, should bring absolute pure joy to our hearts, knowing that we are so privileged to be called and are your children. But Lord, as we will see, this comes with responsibilities. And I pray, Lord, that as we make our way through this text, that we'll both be convicted and convinced of who we are in Christ. And that, Lord, it will spur us on to live more and more to be like Jesus Christ, like you have called us, like we are supposed to be living, separated from the world and unto Jesus Christ. Lord, let your spirit lead, guide, and direct. For Christ's sake. Amen. What I'm going to do is somewhat unorthodox this morning. We're going to work our way backwards from verse 10 and up as we make our way through this passage. But the first point that I want to highlight to us is In verse 10, children of God imitate their father. Children imitate their father. Being a child of God means that we're going to act like our father. Those of us who are parents, and this is regardless of if you have daughters or sons. I have a daughter. We're adopting a son. And they both want to do things like I do. Yesterday, I was out back practicing those golf swings, 
those those dummy golf swings and there was austin daddy I'm, I'm 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 like you i'm trying to be like you my daughter does the same thing and you've experienced that dads have you not you've experienced your sons or your daughters trying to imitate daddy why are they doing this why aren't they imitating barris because barris isn't their daddy Barris isn't their father. They're imitating you because you're their father. They want to replicate you. That's the same thing that we're called to do as believers, as children of God. We are called to imitate. So when the world looks at us, they see us looking like the God that we're serving. The believers in Acts were called Christians. Why? Because they were acting like little Christs. They were acting like little Jesuses, hence they got the nickname, and it stuck. John states that being a child of God is clearly seen. It is evident. When people look at you, they should know. Even if they don't have any idea that you're living out the Bible, because they don't have knowledge of the Bible, they should see something different in you than what they see in the world. They should see that. It is evident. It is lived out, not just lipped out. So in other words, we don't just say we are children of God. We don't just say that we're believers. We live it, folks. We act it out. We live it out. As a child of God, one practices righteousness. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident, not my words, that's John's word, it's evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Strong words that the world doesn't like to hear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Point blank. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. As children of God, we practice righteousness because we are children of the righteous one. We are children of the righteous one. A child of God practices holiness because he is holy. He is righteous. We imitate our father because we are called to do so. We are commanded to do so. We ought to be compelled to do so. And from the context of the verse... We do so by loving our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We won't get much into detail about loving because that's for next week. John goes into in-depth detail for the rest of chapter 3, 1 John 3, about loving one another and what that looks like and does not look like. But that's a hallmark of being a child of God. We love each other. We love one another. We endeavor to be like God because we are his children. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Be imitators of God as their children. Two simple and fundamental tests that are set forth in this text that distinguishes a child of God from the child of the devil. Very clear. First, Do you do what is right 
And secondly, do you love others? It's that simple. Do you do what is right and do you love others? Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? Show yourselves to be true children when you practice righteousness. You show yourself to be true children when you practice and emulate emulate love to the brothers and sisters in Christ. This Westmount is what God does. He's righteous in his being. He is love in his being. And this is what we, this is what you and I ought to do and ought to be doing. Like the child that emulates his earthly father, who mimics his earthly father, so too we, you and I, who are children of the Most High God, must mimic, must imitate, ought to imitate our Savior. But here's the sad reality. There are two parentage that are presented in verse 10. Two parentage that are presented here for us in verse 10. And you will reveal your parentage by your practices. It sounds harsh. You might be offended, and you should be, because this is the word of God. This is what John says explicitly. I'm not making this up. You just saw it. In your own Bible, you will reveal your parentage by how you live your life. Why does the world look like the devil? Why does the world look devilish? Because they are imitating, whether by default, whether by doing it intentionally, subconsciously, they're imitating their father. They're imitating their father. So the question is... Who is your father, Westmount? The life that you live will provide a clear and undeniable answer and witness to that question. You could say it all you want. Oh, I'm a child of God. And you can quote every single passage in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that is an undeniable proof that this, there are children of God. But unless people see it, no amount of quotation is going to convince them that you are. We have to live it. We have to live it. Children of God imitate their father. Children imitate their father. In verse 9, we see that children of God are born of God. The reason why we are children and we can imitate our Father, imitate God the Father, is because we are born of Him. Once more, again, John draws our attention to the new birth, the doctrine of regeneration. One of the distinguishing marks of Christians is that we are born again or born from above. You have been converted. You have been born again. You have been regenerated, however you want to term it. Your life has been transformed. That heart of stone has been transformed into a heart of frost, a new heart, a new creation, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. You have been reborn. But what does this mean? 
The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says, Regeneration or the new birth is a work, and I would add the work of God's grace, whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the work and convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God from sin unto salvation, to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is genuinely turning away from sin and turning to God. Turning from sin, turning to God. A 180 degree, if we want to use a mathematical term for that. Not 360, 180. Repentance is turning away from sin, turning to God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as our Lord and our Savior. That, folks, is regeneration. According to the New Bible Dictionary, regeneration is a drastic act of fallen human nature by the Holy Spirit, if you notice these definition and these description has nothing to do with you. It's all about Christ. It's all about God and God through the Holy Spirit working in us, transforming us, convicting us, and changing us into that new creature. Hence why we can be called children of God. So it's a drastic act of fallen human nature by the Holy Spirit leading to a change in a person's whole outlook. So it's a change from the inside out, as I always say. It's a transformation that occurs on the inside, but it establishes and it completely shows and expresses itself outwardly. Hence why when people look at you, they know that something is different in you than that individual that's going down there and living a rambunctious lifestyle. He, you and I, can now be described as a new man who seeks and finds and follows after God. That's the new Bible dictionary's definition. This seed which abides in us through Christ, through the work of Christ, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, us being in Christ, our new new nature, we are not only born of God, but we are intimate with God. We are intimate with God. Children of God are born of God. You're regenerated. If you're not, and if this is you, if you are here and you have not surrendered and bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are not a child of God. But that can change. You can surrender. Through the convicting power of the same Spirit of God, You can surrender your lives to him. And Westmount, this is why we can say profoundly with 
gusto that I am a child of God because the Holy Spirit of God grabbed a hold of my heart through the proclamation of the word of God and the work that Christ did on the cross for me. I can say, yes, I am a child of God. There is evidence of that. I have been transformed. I have been changed. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. We can say that. We can say that. We have intimate relationship with God. But as children of God, we also have an ultimate freedom. And Jason has been going through this as he made his way through Romans. We have ultimate freedom. If you look at verses 4 to 8, everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness by default is righteous. Whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil. There it is again. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For, and the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason why Jesus Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. We have the ultimate freedom. What do I mean by this? We do not live a life of sin. We do not continue wallowing, if I want to use that term, in sin. We do not keep practicing sin. Why? Because this, for this reason Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. John addresses this in a few verses, including in verse 9. We, you and I, are not described as lawless because we ought to be imitating and we are imitating God our Father. We are not lawless because we are born of God. However, without the new birth, this needs to be said, it is impossible to live the way God wants us to live. You can't do it. Without God transforming your lives, you can't go and say, you know what, I'm going to live a godly lifestyle. And that's why people get this misconceived notion that I'm a good person. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't swear. I don't drink. I don't smoke, etc. Have you been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you accepted his work on the cross? If the answer is no, you are lawless. It is impossible to live the way God wants us to live. It's difficult enough as believers to live how God wants us to live. With the Holy Spirit indwelling us. With us trying our very best to imitate God our Father. With us being born of God. Imagine how challenging that would be without the Holy Spirit of God. 
Why can't you live the way God wants you to live if you're not saved? Because sin has dominion over you. Sin is reigning over you. Sin, that's your domain. You're abiding in sin. So these people hate. These people practice unrighteousness. These people lie. And the list goes on and on and on because they are in the domain of sin. But thanks be to God for the new birth. According to John, the one who is in Christ, the one who is abiding in Christ, the one whose domain is in the Son of God, our Savior, cannot. That's what John says, cannot keep on living a life of sin. They can't. Yes, we will stumble. John is well aware of that. You go back to chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess He wouldn't put that in the passage if he knew that these are sinless people. Sinless people don't need to confess sin. Just makes sense. We will stumble. But by the grace of God, we will stand. And remember this one thing. And John mentions mentions it later in the book. Greater is he. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. These verses assures us victory over sin, folks. Victory over sin. Not because of our own strength. Because in our own strength, we will continue to falter and fail. Victory because of Christ and the work that he accomplished for us. If it were not for him, if it were not for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his atoning work, him being our advocate as we saw in chapter 2 verse 1, his victory, Westman, we would still be enslaved to sin. We'd still be enslaved to sin. So here are some compelling truths. Why are children of God not lawless? And this is violating God's law, living in a manner that is just constantly engulfed in violating God's law. In verse 8, John reminds us Christ came to destroy, to annihilate, to eliminate the works, to put to an end the works of the devil. Sin and Satan And you could add, hell are defeated, believers. They are defeated. This is complete victory. This isn't temporal victory. This is complete victory. By his atonement, sin's penalty has been nullified for those who have been born of God, for those who are children of God. And because of the new birth, Sin's power has been neutralized for the believer. Christ's victory sealed it. His words, it is finished, sealed this victory for us. But the empty tomb confirmed it. His death sealed it. That this is done. It is complete. 
but that empty tune is a confirmation that the work is actually done. It is complete. Righteousness ought to be pursued by the believer. This is paramount as a child of God. Don't be deceived. In our day and age, sin is glorified. Sin is lauded and praised more and more in every facet, in every form, in every aspect. It doesn't matter what. Sin is being magnified. And to deny or to object to sin's glorification is seen by the world's standard as wrong as offensive and all the other terminologies that they put it. But if that's the case, Christians, if you're offending people because you're not lauding and glorifying sin, guess what? Continue to be in the wrong. Continue to offend. Continue to make people be angry because God requires righteous living from his children. Who cares, and I say this with absolute fervor, who cares what the world thinks? Who cares what they say? Who cares if they're offended? We need to be more concerned what God thinks. That's what we need to be concerned with. Because it's not going to get any better. Sin is going to be glorified more and more on a broader scale. Continue to be in the wrong because our standards are set by God the Father, not the politicians, not the alphabetical order, not yourself. God's standards are set by God Himself, and it's by those standards that His children live. Period. This world does not and should not and cannot dictate what morality is for the church. You cannot dictate what morality is for yourself either. It has to be this. It has to be the word of God. God dictates what morality is because he sets it based on his morals and standards, who he is in his being. Verses 6 to 4 reminds us why we cannot continue living sinning because we are in Jesus Christ. We abide in him and in him there is no sin, no darkness at all. So the flip side is this. If we continue in sin, by default it means we're not in him. We're not abiding in him. And John goes, say, you don't even know him. You don't even know who he is if this is your lifestyle. You have no fellowship with him. You have no fellowship with the, with the fellow believers, those who are actually children of God. Such a practice is counter to what Christ, what God the Father, what the Holy Scriptures prescribed. We have the ultimate freedom. I know at times it feels like, man, failed again, failed again, failed again. 
But by the grace of God, believer, keep fighting the good fight. Keep pressing on for that prize. Keep pressing to be more and more like Christ our Savior. Dust that off. Confess as John commands us to do. But continue to pursue godliness and righteousness because it is required of you. Children of God have ultimate freedom from the power, the penalty, and by the grace of God, the presence of sin. And with that, I lead into my fourth point. Children of God have a glorious hope. Look at verse 2 and 3. And if this this doesn't bring comfort to you, the last few verses, verses 8 to 4, might be sombering. And I can tell you this, in preparing this, I completely restructured, rewrote this sermon because after I preached it at New Life a couple years ago. And man, it was heavy stuff, folks. So if you feel downcast and downhearted, I get it. But that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit is convicting you and convincing you that, hey, you falter, you fail. But now confess and get back on your feet and press on for the glory of God. Beloved, we are God's children now. And I want you to hold on to that statement. We are God's children now. And what will we will be has not yet appeared. We have no idea, John is saying, what we'll be. But this one thing is certain. We know that when he appears, we shall be like who? Like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure and if you go to verse 28 of chapter 2 now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming children of god has have a glorious hope In life, we have all sorts of hopes and dreams and aspirations. Some might be, man, I want that nice sports car. I want that nice house. For those who are married, I want a nice spouse or good spouse. And these, some of these things are not bad to hope and aspire for. But some of these things are also a probability It's a probability or a possibility that I might get that sports car. It's not an absolute certainty is what I'm saying. It's not an absolute certainty that you're going to get the the good spouse. Pray towards that end for sure. It's not a possibility or a probability or a certainty that you're going to get the big mansion. Or whatever it is materialistically you're aspiring or hoping for. But here is something, folks, that is an absolute certainty. It's as certain as the dawning of the sun. There is absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things 
will occur. We will see Jesus. We will be like Jesus. That is a glorious, glorious hope. But here is how we respond to this hope. I say with these privileges come responsibilities. While we wait to see him, while we wait to see what we will be like, we need to be doing something. And John says, this, these people, whoever, the children of God, who hopes in, this, in seeing Christ for who he is, to see him appear, burst through those clouds, purifies. We live a holy life. So what we're going to be in eternity, for all eternity, we're starting to practice that now. And that's what I always tell folks. How we live here as believers and what we're commanded, how we're commanded to live here as believers is just but an echo of what eternity is going to look like. It goes to a fellowship and gathering together. Why would you hate coming to be among the brothers and sisters in Christ when that's eternity? You're going to be with them for an eternity. You're in the wrong religion. Why would we not want to be more and more like Christ now when that's eternity? Again, you're in the wrong religion. That's eternity, folks. So John says, while we wait, and that is going to happen, it's guaranteed. This is how you have to be living. This is how you have to be walking. Purify yourself. Why? Because he is pure. And the premise is we're going to be like Jesus Christ. What about our hope that compels us to pursue holiness? There is something glorious awaiting us in eternity. Our transformed, glorified bodies. And as I mentioned earlier, John says he has no idea what this looks like. But one thing he's certain about is that it will be like that of Jesus Christ. Westmount, that is our destiny. That is your destiny. Why not start living eternity now? Why not start living eternity while we're on earth? We will see Christ, our victorious Lord, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. We will see him as he is glorified, high and lifted up, highly exalted, seated at the right hand of the throne of grace. This is for eternity, our future state of us being with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards sums it up beautifully. Grace is glory began. Glory is grace completed. Grace is glory began. Glory is grace completed. We do not have to know what we will be like. It is enough to know that we will be like our Lord and our Savior. It is enough to know that we will be with our Lord and Savior forever. That is one of the greatest privilege of being a child of God. The creator of this universe is going to have us 
by him, praising and glorifying and worshiping him for eternity. That should bring joy and hope and comfort to the lives and the hearts of believers. And if you're not saved and you're here, hearing me, this should compel you to see, man, I want that. I want that. But you need it. It's not a want. It's a necessity. That's all we need to know. And in this, we hope. Nothing in this created universe can and will be compared to that, to being with our Savior for eternity. We are recipients of such hope only again can't deviate from this because of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that makes us confident in his appearing. We won't shriek away in shame and in fear and in terror that Christ is coming. But on the contrary, this hope makes us eager for his coming. It is waiting for the ultimate Christmas. That's what the return of Christ should be for us as children of God. Waiting for that ultimate Christmas. You're so eager. You're so excited. And kids, as they do at Christmas time, they try to walk on eggshell because they don't want to disturb. They don't want to upset mommy and daddy because they want what's under the tree. Folks, that should be us. That should be us. That's the ultimate Christmas. All praise to Christ. Only, only because of him while we have this hope. This is the hope that we ought to let the world know about. We have a glorious hope as children of God. My fifth and final point. We are children of God. Our children of God are called and are declared children. Divine declaration as dear children, as loved children. Hence why we show love to the brothers, because he loves us. God demonstrates our love towards us in sending his son to defeat the plans of the enemy. Sending him to die for our sins, Romans 5.8. His love is clearly seen in him declaring us to be children. That's another way of God showing that he loves us. He's calling us children, and he says, and so you are. It's a divine declaration of our position in Jesus Christ, our position in the family of God, and so you are. And this isn't something that is future. That's why John says, you are right now. In this very moment, the moment you accepted Christ, the moment that new birth took place, you are a child of God. Right this minute, sons and daughters. And this causes us to reflect. This causes or should cause us to praise. This should cause us to be more thankful. And especially if we recall the passage that I opened with, Ephesians chapter 2, our deadness, how we lived, who we were following, this should cause us to rejoice. John states that you should be called and are, we are that. What a declaration, folks. What a declaration. 
John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, which was read for us by Josh. As many as received him, to them he gave the right. Those are powerful words, the right. That is your God-given right to be called sons and daughters of God. Don't take that lightly, Westmount. Don't take that lightly. That is an awesome privilege to be called sons of God. Being known or being called children of God or sons of God, however you want to term it, to me is the greatest privilege of being a believer. Because it comes with all the rights and benefits and privileges of Christianity. Both here and in the future. This title, this position as a son or a child, a daughter, comes with innumerable benefits. We have a personal, intimate relationship with the creator and sustainer of this universe. Think on that for a second. We call him Abba Father. We call him Friend. The one who said, let there, who spoke the world into being, we have a close, intimate relationship with. He calls us his own, Westmount. He claims us as his own. He sets us apart as his own. Sets us apart from the rest of the world. And as a result, our eternal hope, our glorious hope is as sure as the sun is going to come up and is going to go down. That's how certain our hope is. But as I said, with such great calling, with such great privilege, comes great responsibilities. As children, as their children, we must, it is paramount that we live a life that reflects and resembles our Father who has called us and declared us to be children. We cannot and we ought not live the way we want, we think we should live. We ought not and cannot live the way the world dictates that we live. We are called, we are not called to live how we want. He calls us, he claims us, he chose us as is his own to what? Be conformed to the image of his only begotten son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. To let our lives reflect him and him alone in this crooked, perverse world. Being a child of God has rights, has privileges, but it also has responsibilities. Let us live, Westmount. Let us so live. Let us so walk. And next week we will see another great responsibility that comes with being children. Because if we're children of God, then we're brothers and sisters. And there are responsibilities on that front, and we'll see that next week. But I urge you, Westmount, live for the glory of God. Live righteous life. Live holy lives. And be proud in your proclamation that we are children of God. 
not because of our own merits, not because of anything that we could have ever done to receive such honor, but because of what Christ did on the cross for us. And again, I urge if you're here, you're not saved. If you're struggling in your faith, at the end of the service, there will be individuals you can talk to and pray with, and they will pray with you and for you. Surrender your lives to him. Surrender your lives to him. There's no better way to live than living for Jesus. Father, we are so grateful for the reminder in this text of who we are in Christ, who you've set, apart, set us apart to be. But we're also mindful, Lord, of struggles we have with sin, that we need to be putting them to death on a daily basis. But we're also thankful, Lord, that Christ, in Christ, we have the ultimate victory. And let us live our lives vicariously through him. We praise you, we adore you, we magnify you, Lord, and we can't thank you enough for being merciful and gracious to include us in your family. For Christ's sake, amen.